Turn in uh, the uh, Pew Bibles, or your own Bible, preferably. Um, in the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 1157. I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Well, one of the great American pastimes is going to the barber. And when you go to the barber in America, and I don't know, maybe it's this way around the world, I'm not as familiar with getting your hair cut in foreign countries, but one of the things when you go to the barber in America is there's sort of this cultural expectation And that is that when you go to the barber, you're going to get more than a haircut. You're going to get lively conversation as well. Uh, Some of the best barbers, I think, are are not necessarily even the ones who do the best haircuts, but they sort of engage you in conversation, and you can sort of expect that when you go to the barber. And I've discovered that on a number of of occasions when I have gone to the barber, and especially when I'm going to a barber, a new barber who doesn't know me, and and we start to to talk and, and, and get into conversation At some point, it it comes up that I'm a pastor, and the whole conversation just shifts. And and I think I've I've shared this kind of thing before. You can just sort of tell the gears are turning in the mind of the barber. He's thinking, what have I said? What what has come out of my mouth? And and, and oftentimes, he'll say, sorry, pastor, I'll try to watch my mouth or something like that. Uh, But then oftentimes, as we continue to talk, we'll start talking about religious things, talking about spiritual things. And usually what happens, or not, not all the time, but oftentimes there will come this point in the conversation where the barber will say something like, well, pastor, you know, all religions are really the same. And I think that when the barber says that, and I don't know for sure, but my suspicion is that more often than not, when the barber in the middle of conversation says that all religions are the same, my suspicion is that stems Uh, less from a a really rigorous, having done a really rigorous evaluation of different religions to come to this conclusion, as much as it stems from the desire not to uh, be confrontational. Right? I mean, it's just, just, uh, you know, religion's a touchy subject. So so let's just just say all religions are the same, and then we can all kind of of come together under one umbrella, and, and then maybe we can get back to talking about sports or something like that. And so the question I, I want to address, at least at the beginning of this service, is are all religions the same? And I think that as we come to the Bible, the, the resounding answer is, is no, that, that all religions are, are not the same. And of course, there are differences that are small, for sure. Sometimes we make a bigger deal out of small differences than we ought to, but oftentimes we neglect the, the big differences. And what I actually want to do just at the beginning here is sort of paint for you sort of three basic options, that basically all religious worldviews 
essentially fall into one of these three categories, one of these three worldview categories. And basically, this, the, the way you can understand this is by asking this basic question, and that is, how do heaven and earth relate to one another? How do heaven and earth relate to one another? How does the divine and the mundane relate to one another? How does God relate to earth? How does heaven and earth relate? And, and there are basically three answers to this question. There are really two that most religions fall under. The first answer to this question is that, that heaven and earth are basically the same. That there's no distinction between heaven and earth. That, that sort of, you know, uh, everything is divine and, and that divine is everything. That, that everything is God and God is everything. And this is where we get the word pantheism. Pantheism, pan is the Greek word for all, and theism for God. Pantheism meaning all things are God, and God is all things, that there's divinity in, 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 in everything. And, and uh, you know, so everything is divine. The rocks are divine, the, the stars are divine, the moon's divine, the, you name it, it's divine. And, and actually, one of the things that emerges out of this sort of pantheistic view actually is polytheism. That ancient polytheism, many forms of it are actually a form of, of pantheism. In other words, if you start thinking that everything's divine, then you just start you know, giving names for these different divine things. If the sun is divine, well, then you give it a name. You call it a god, the god of the sun and the god of the moon and the god of the stars. And so you, just, you start getting all of these different gods sort of as a way of reminding you that everything's divine, and, and in some sense then, some people might say that really polytheism is just the marriage between pantheism and personification. It's the marriage between pantheism and personification. We just start identifying these things as, as being divine, and actually ancient Stoicism, which is one of uh, ancient forms of pantheism, actually in a sense sought to depersonify the, the polytheism that was around them. And so they would say, well, okay, well, maybe, maybe there are these gods. Maybe there are, maybe they aren't. But really, they, they all just kind of, uh, there's really just this underlying spirituality underneath, underneath all of them. That, that it's all part of this same system, that heaven and earth are basically one. That there's, there's no distinction between the two. And actually, what happens is that, is that pantheism actually then, in many respects, can lead to or is related to atheism. Because if there's no distinction between the earthly and the divine, then the divine sort of becomes meaningless. Sort of like when you give a trophy to every kid at an athletic competition. Every kid gets a trophy no matter what they did, then that trophy sort of loses its meaning. In the same sense that if everything's divine, then divinity itself sort of Sort of becomes uh, sort of becomes meaningless, and then pantheism just sort of becomes atheism infused with semantic mysticism, or or you might say that that pantheism is atheism for right-brained people. Pantheism is atheism for right-brained people because right-brained people they're not happy with the cold rational uh, you know logical rationalism of the left-brained atheism. Uh, so, so they, they, they've got to have, there's got to be something more than just that, so, so pantheism. But it's really all just kind of the same thing, that, that heaven and earth are, are basically one. So that's, that's one worldview option, and a lot of world's religions basically stem out of that basic worldview. Now, the second worldview option is basically the opposite of that. 
and that is that heaven and earth are separate, completely separate. Uh, That's sort of the way the Epicureans, for example, ancient Epicureanism held this view that heaven and earth were were really very separate. And in more modern times, this is where we get the whole idea of deism. And to a a deist, uh, you know, maybe God God created the world, um, but he's not involved anymore. He just kind of got it going, and now it's moving along on its own steam. Uh, That God is sort of like, like that child who you know, builds something out of Legos and then loses interest and goes on to something else. And so God kind of set everything up, and it's kind of moving on its own steam, uh, but he's not really involved. So to, to a person who thinks that way, then they might say, well, I believe in God. I believe in God, but, but there's really no point in praying to God. There's no point in going to church. I mean, there's no point in trying to worship him because he, there's just no interaction between heaven and earth. So, so we have these two worldview options here, that everything God is everything and everything is God, right? There's no distinction between heaven and earth. Then you have this, this other worldview where there is this stark distinction uh, between heaven and earth. And I think the majority of the world's religions kind of fit into one of these categories. And the question I want to ask this morning then is, well, where does the God of the Bible fit in? Does the God of the Bible fit into either of these two frameworks? And Right off the bat, we can say that it does not fit with pantheism, that that everything is one, that God's just a part of creation, that the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible just rules that out immediately. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right off the bat, he's saying God is distinct from the rest of the world. God is distinct from creation. The reality is is that in sort of contemporary religious uh, conversation, when we get to the book of Genesis, particularly the early chapters of Genesis, we get all caught up in these modern debates about, well, how did God create it? Was it six literal days? Was it, was it metaphorical days? And we, we, we get so caught up in the how that we miss that the real profound thing that's being proclaimed here is not simply how God did it, but that He created The Genesis 1-1 sounds like a canon across the bow of the ancient polytheistic pantheism that surrounded the ancient peoples. So it says, no, God is is distinct from creation. So right off the bat, okay, we know that God's distinct. But but maybe if you just go from Genesis 1-1, then maybe, okay, he's sort of this deist God where he, he created it, and now it's just moving along on its own steam, but he's not really involved. Turn with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, this is on page 56 of your pew Bible, and in this passage, we're going to discover a third worldview option that just sort of explodes onto the scene, that you could think, okay, well, again, maybe God created the world, Genesis 1-1, so pantheism's out, but but maybe he's distinct and separate from creation. We come to Exodus 3 and we see something very different. Page 56. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. 
Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Skipping down to verse 9, so I don't have to pronounce these names here. Verse 9, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on the mountain. We see here that this is not a God who is is distant. This is not a God who just set the world up and now it's moving along and and he's not interested in what's going on. We see a picture here of a God who cares deeply about what is going on in your life. We see a God who cares deeply about the the suffering that you're you're going through. He he cares deeply about the challenges that you're having at work, the challenges that you're having at home, uh, the challenges that you may be having with your health, and and he wants to come for you. This is is the heart of who this God is, is that he's a God who who desires to to come for us, and and he says that I will be with you no matter what it is you're going through. I will be with you. I'm not a God who just just sits up there and and isn't involved. I'm a God who, who intervenes. Of course, it's always in, in God's timing and according to God's plan, not according to, to ours. But the promise is there that this is a very different God. This is a God that, that cares and wants to, to be with us and to help us through the various challenges that we are, we are going through. So, so here we see that it, it, this idea that heaven and earth are separate. No, this is a God who intervenes. And then actually, if we go back, or moving on to verse 13, it actually goes back and refutes the other worldview as well. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I don't really have a name. You can't really give me a name. Because to give me a name would be to label me, to quantify me. And you cannot quantify me because I created the quantifiable. I am beyond what can be quantified. So we see in this passage, this isn't a God. For example, I mean, maybe if you're back to this whole pantheistic worldview, maybe maybe you've got a a God who... um, it intervenes. I mean, you know, the ancient polytheists, they were doing all kinds of, 
of things, but, but their power was limited. It was sort of a, uh, you know, a local power, and, and ultimately they were part of the whole system. So there was only so much that they could do. One of the biggest problems with pantheism is that it has no way to address the problem of evil. Because if, if everything is God and God is everything, then there's no distinction between good and evil. There's, there, and there's also no way, you know, in which from within the system, God can do anything about it. It's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like if you have a, a ship that is sinking and you've got a bunch of people on the ship, you can't expect somebody on the ship to save everybody. Some, something, somebody is going to have to come from outside the system to do something. And, and, and this is what this passage is proclaiming. This is a God that's not just part of this created order, but he can actually come from outside and can intervene and can actually do something about this. So we have this third worldview that just explodes on the scene. We have this this God who is totally other than our creation, and yet he intervenes, he intersects, he comes to dwell within our midst. Now, what do you do? When God comes to dwell within your midst. What do you do when God shows up in your presence? What do you do when God shows up at your doorstep? And the ancient peoples in the ancient Near East, the answer would have been very simple. It's going to sound almost silly, but it's very straightforward. If God shows up near me, well, then I need to give him a place to stay. I need to provide a place for God to stay. You see, the ancient peoples they, in the ancient Near East, they, they prized hospitality very highly. Hospitality was, was a virtue that, that in, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, travel was very difficult. It usually involved a significant amount of walking. And so people just understood that if somebody had come from a long way, they really needed some help. And so there sort of emerged this cultural expectation that you would provide hospitality and you would do just about anything for those people who had come. This partially explains, which ultimately is inexplicable, I'm certainly not here to justify Lot's actions, but if you remember in Genesis chapter 19, uh, Lot is in Sodom and, and two men, two angels of the Lord come, and they are staying with Lot in his house. And if you remember what happens, the, the people of Sodom come and, and they're, they're at the door and they're demanding that Lot hand these two men over to them. And Lot does the inexplicable, Certainly, this is not to justify. What does he do? He offers them his daughters instead. Okay, that, again, I'm not justifying this, but we have to understand that part of the reason, part of his mindset was that they prized hospitality so much that you would would sacrifice even your own life, even your own family, to care for people who were staying in your house. That hospitality was such a big deal that you need to take this very seriously. So, again, what do you do? If God shows up, you provide a place for him to stay. And that's why one of the central narratives throughout the Old Testament is the building of the temple, the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. And it it takes up so much space and so much time, so much narrative that, that David longs to build the temple and ultimately Solomon is the one who gets to build 
the temple, and, and, and you find in the description of the tabernacle and then the temple, that they go into great detail. I mean, you probably notice this. You're like, oh my, they're just spending chapters describing every little detail, the, the dimensions of the various rooms, the materials uh, that were used, uh, the, the color and the quality of the cloth uh, that were used for the curtains, and even the number of hooks that you should use to hang the curtains. And you're like, why are they doing this? Because they had come to see that the God who had created all things had come to dwell within their midst. They had come to see that, that this, this building that they were constructing was to be the place where heaven and earth intersect. They weren't the only peoples to build temples in that day. Of course, all, you know most of the religions, they, they would build a temple for this God or that God. But building a temple for, for one of those gods was, really, you were just basically building a restaurant for the, for the god. Uh, the, basically, the, the ancient poly, gods, the polytheistic systems and whatnot, when you build a temple for a god, there was really one purpose. It was to feed the god. It was sort of like uh, all, the only thing gods needed from us was these, these sacrifices. So we would sacrifice animals. That would feed the gods, and then that would appease them, and then they'd leave us alone. But not this god. They didn't see this god as really you know, just part of the system. These other gods were kind of like them. They're kind of different, kind of not, but not this god. I mean, he was totally other than. And that when they built this temple, they were creating the very place where heaven and earth would intersect. And so you find Psalms, like, see if I can, if I marked it here, Psalm, Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You would not find this kind of language talking about some other God. No, but, but he sees that to, to dwell in the temple is to dwell in the very place where heaven and earth intersect. And that brings us to our passage this morning sort of an extended introduction. I promise you the body of the sermon is not as long as the introduction. But that sets the context within which we can understand the profound nature of what Paul is saying in this passage. I'm going to begin just in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, at the heart of the the Christian faith is this incredible mystery that, that in Jesus, heaven and earth have been permanently united. Heaven and earth have, have, have come together. He's, this is the first several centuries of the church wrestled with how to find the language to articulate this incredible mystery. Spent hundreds of years trying to find the right language. How do you describe this idea that heaven and earth now intersect in this, in this person that now he has become 
the place where the divine presence comes, that he has become, in this sense, the temple or the foundation of the temple. And, of course, throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him doing precisely the things that really were only supposed to be done at the temple. We see him healing people and forgiving sin. And, of course, to the religious leaders of the day, they're like, wait a minute, what are you doing forgiving sin? That's supposed to be done by the priests through the whole temple system. And what Jesus is pointing to is that now, actually, the intersection point between heaven and earth is in me, that in Jesus, that they are permanently united. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is pointing to the reality that that through Jesus, right, now we can enter into the very holy of holies, that we can enter right into the very center of the presence of God. That that in Old Testament times, though the people of Israel could could come to the temple, the very center of the temple was not... Uh, was not a place that they could go. The, the, the seat of God in the Holy of Holies, this was a place where only one person, the high priest, he could only enter in there once a year. But then as we discover what, uh, that because of Christ, that, that now we can enter in, that before our sin separated us from God, we could only get so close because of our sin, right? And this is another thing about this God. You see, when you are confronted with the presence of this God who is wholly other than creation, the first thing that you are going to become very aware of is your lack of holiness. I mean, if you're just worshiping your sort of -of run-of-the-mill God who's sort of like everything else, you don't really see the sinfulness in your own life. You just, you don't see it. But when you stand before the God who created all things, all of a sudden you see this tremendous gap. And so the people of Israel understood this. And so, so they couldn't go in. They couldn't go right into the center. But the heart of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has completely forgiven us of our sin. That he has absorbed our offenses, has taken them upon himself, and has now enabled us to enter into the, the very presence of God, into the very heart of the temple. But Paul takes it one step further. Notice this, Paul isn't simply saying that now, through Jesus, we can enter into the heart of the temple. He's actually saying that we are the temple. We are the very place where God comes to reside. We are the very place where heaven and earth intersect. That when we profess faith in Christ, when we put our hope and our trust in in Him, then we become the place where heaven and earth intersect. Have you ever thought about that? That that when you go out and into your week and the various things that you do, you, you go to work and you find yourself sitting uh, it's some, some committee meeting, and, and you're, you're sitting with a bunch of your, your colleagues, and, and you know you're sitting with uh, this one colleague who, who you know is, is struggling with some really severe health issue and doesn't even know if he's going to be able to continue to work, or, or, or you're sitting next to that, that coworker who's going through a divorce, and you can just see it on his face, or, or, or that, that other coworker who, who is, is actually kind of annoying and obnoxious, because they're just really insecure. They're insecure about, about who they are, and, and so they really just don't know how to interact with other people. And as you are sitting with these people, see, what we need to realize is that you are the intersection point between heaven and earth, that you are the very place where they can become to see heaven and earth coming together. Paul is saying that when we 
We gather together. We are the temple of the Lord. And, 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 and this is important. I want to I just kind of conclude with four, uh, four kind of insights into what it means that we are the temple of God. First of all, because, because we are the temple of God, we need each other. We need each other. You see, uh, Paul does, actually, in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he talks about how each one of us is the temple. He uses that kind of language when he's talking about how he, he uses that as the grounds for calling us to sexual purity. He says, you are the temple, so you need to, to treat your body like it's the temple of the Lord. So he uses it, it seems, in an individualistic sense. But more often than not, when Paul talks about us being the temple, and in other places in the New Testament where it talks about it, for example, in First Peter, uh, it actually talks about us being different stones that come together to build the temple. Rather that we all play a different role, a different, a different place in this coming together to, to, to build this temple. And later on, this sort of becomes the ground for later on in Ephesians when he starts talking about the different roles uh, that, that people have, different gifts that, that members of the church have. But for our purposes, I just want us to see that Paul's saying that, that for this temple to be built, it requires that we come together, that when we come together, When we come together, we are building the temple, the very place where heaven and earth intersect. Right? You you, you guys know the, what is it? You know, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors. Where are the people? And then there's, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors and look at the people. And I think the point of that, I don't really remember. This is just kind of fun to do. But I think the point here is that it's the people that make up the church. It's the people that make up the building. And this is why it matters when you come on Sunday. That's why it's important that we, that we gather together, that, that, that the more come, that the bigger this temple becomes, that when we gather together in community, it's the very place where heaven and earth intersect. When you gather together in your community groups, When you gather together in your community groups, you are building a temple in which heaven and earth intersect. Have you thought about that? Did you think about that when you you go into your community groups? Do you you have that sort of perspective, right? That we we need one another. We need one another. That's the first first implication that comes from this. Because we are the temple, we, we need one another. Second implication of what it means that we are the temple is that we must be sure to remove the cultural barriers that hinder other people from coming in and being a part of this temple. And, and this, is, uh, this points us back to what we discussed last week. Uh, this idea, we talked about how the law, the law that had been given to Moses, uh, to Abraham and to Moses, that this law had been given to the people of Israel with the ultimate purpose of enabling them to be a blessing to the nations. That was the ultimate purpose. That The ultimate purpose of the law was to ultimately enable them to Love God and to love their neighbor. This is what Jesus, is when he comes and talks about the law, this is what he's saying, that the ultimate purpose of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. But what we saw is that one aspect of that law, the the ceremonial law, the sort of cultural dimension of the law, it actually became a hindrance to their ability to, to accomplish the very thing it was given for in the first place. We saw that when the law was given, these cultural things like circumcision and dietary laws, that they didn't actually mark the people out from, from the surrounding cultures all that much. That in the ancient Near East, a lot of them practiced these similar kinds of practices. But by the time of Jesus, the world had changed so much around them. 
that now that these very things that had been given to them to remind them of their purpose of loving God and loving their neighbor, the cultural dimensions of these had actually become a hindrance to their ability to love God and love their neighbors. And so Jesus abolished the law, right? And he's doing this so that he can welcome the Gentiles in. He can welcome those who are culturally different in, that they can come in and be a part of this. This is what he's getting at. He's talking to the Gentiles saying, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. He's saying now that this, the ceremonial law has come down, now the Gentiles can come in and they can become stones that build this temple. So we saw that we have to be careful that, that a, a church can form its own culture. Church culture, you can have your own your own culture, and we have to be very careful that even a good church culture, a good church, things about our church that were given to us by God and served a purpose, that, that maybe now we're in a season where some of those things need to change because the world has changed, and so we've got to find ways to bring these barriers down so that others can come in and can be a part of the temple. The second implication of what it means that we are the temple is that we need to be careful to not let these barriers uh, within our church culture separate us from those around us in terms of welcoming them in. The third implication of what it means that we are the temple is that we should expect God to show up. That when we gather together as the temple, we should expect God to show up. There should be this anticipation, this excitement. And you, you find as you read through the Psalms, there's uh, s- several Psalms where there's sort of this longing to get to the temple. I can't wait to get to the temple because they understood that that was the place where heaven and earth intersect. And, and when we get together, when we gather together, there's this, there should be this sense of expectation that, that God is going to be there. And I, Let me give you an illustration, which, which might just be a really bad one, but maybe it'll be entertaining. I, I remember I was watching a movie a number of years ago and actually, I, I think I'm probably combining a number of different movies. Uh, but really, it's because there are a lot of movies that are pretty much the same. Uh, this is it, kind of the Indiana Jones-type movies, Tomb Raider-ish type movies, you know, where, where they're all the same, right? It, it starts off like this. You have some archaeologist uh, in a cave in South America, uh, and he discovers some hieroglyphics, right? You know, and, and he reads the hieroglyphics, and, and what he realizes is that these ancient peoples have found a portal to the gods. They found this portal it's to the gods or aliens. It kind of depends. Sometimes it's aliens, sometimes it's gods, you know, whatever. And, and so they found this portal, and to make the portal work, though, they've got you know, to get different objects. Like, they've got to get this stone that's just the right weight, right quality, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they've got to get, uh, you know, like the golden chalice and, and you know, maybe a particular kind of seawater or something like that. And so then most of the movie, they're traveling around the world trying to find all these things. And, of course, there's the bad guys, right, who they also know about the portal. And, and they want to use the gods or the aliens or whatever for their own evil purposes. So, so the protagonist is racing around the world trying to get all of these things, trying to get it before the bad guy does. And then, then you know, usually if it's, uh, you know... If, if it has a happy ending movie, he comes back with, with all of these things, the seawater and the chalice and the stone, and they, and they set everything right where they're supposed to be. And then the stone, he goes, maybe the, the one last thing that needs to be put in place, that stone needs to be put on the mantle right as the sunlight shines in through the window at that particular moment. And this is the climax of the entire movie. 
And there's this incredible sense of expectation that this portal is going to open up and aliens or God or something is going to come down. I realize that's, that's a Hollywoodized, fictionalized kind of story, but I think it points to a fundamental reality that is at the heart of the Christian faith, and that is that when we gather together, in our community groups, in worship, that we should come with this expectation. That God is going to show up, that this is the very place where heaven and earth intersect. It's the third implication of what it means for us to be the temple. The fourth implication of what it means for us to be the temple is that we are called to be the means through which God brings reconciliation into our world. We've seen this, that this is the central theme of this entire series on the book of Ephesians, that what Ephesians is about is that God's ultimate purpose is to bring reconciliation and renewal into this world, that God's ultimate plan is to flood this earth with his very presence, you see. And we see a picture of that in Revelation 21, that at the end of the day, that this will finally happen, that there will be this marriage of of heaven and earth, that God's presence will flood this earth and and come together. And and so there's this imagery in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's this beautiful imagery of of, of heaven and earth being united, of God flooding, flooding his creation with his goodness and his beauty to renew all things and to get to get rid of, of death and pain and suffering. And, and what we see in, in the book of Ephesians and, and throughout the New Testament is as the people of God, we are called to anticipate that. that we, we become as the temple of God and as the temple grows and as our church grows and as we go out and, and, and work our way into society at all different levels, that we become the means through which God brings this kind of reconciliation in anticipation of this final day. My prayer is that as we move forward into 2015, that we would come to grips with this tremendous reality that we, we are the people of God, that, that God wants to dwell within our midst, and that we are the very place, the very place where heaven and earth intersect. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you right now, humbled by the reality that you care enough about us that you would come for us. We come before you because we know that you are a God who hears our prayers, that desires to be in our presence and for us to be in yours. God, I pray that we would just grow in the sense that you are with us that we would see the high calling that you have placed upon us to be the means through which you bring reconciliation into this world. Spirit, come. Come to us. 
We open ourselves, we open our hearts, we open our lives to you that you may come and dwell within our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.